Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Friends, I'm standing in this morning for the Vicar of Ringwood, Maria Brand Starkey, whose mother has died. So we might think to pray for her and her family uh, as they grieve her this morning and lead her funeral. I once visited Hampton Court Palace, just west of London, kind of built by King Henry VIII. But in one particular wing of Hampton Court Palace, uh, there's a long corridor with five throne rooms along the corridor. This was built later than King Henry by King William. Why five throne rooms along that corridor? Well, The idea was that the king would show you your status by meeting you in the first or the second, the third, fourth or the fifth throne room. If you are a really important guest, he would come down the corridor and you'd only have to go in a little way to the first throne room. He was making the move. But if you were a very lowly guest or perhaps the ambassador from an empire or a kingdom that you just attacked... He would make you walk down the corridor, the walk of shame, and meet him in the throne room furthest distant from the entry. We don't understand this anymore. How we approach the monarch, the rules, the protocols about approaching a king have been significant in most periods of history. And even more recently... Uh, the Queen visited Australia when Paul Keating was Prime Minister. And to get the Queen through the throng of people, Paul Keating put his arm around the Queen's back to shuffle her through. Never. The London tabloids had a field day. The most important of the headings was, Paul Keating is the Lizard of Oz. (laughs) How disgraceful, how lowly to do something as disgusting to our sovereign lady. We just assume that you can do anything with a king or anything with a queen. But actually, there are protocols, right? There are certain ways of approaching and certain ways of not approaching. And that is certainly the assumption in the scriptures. When we approach God, there are right ways and there are wrong ways. It's not our right, but a privilege he extends. You can't just turn up and expect God to work in with your assumptions or schedule or approach. And that was one of the profound lessons in the Old Testament when God gave instructions for the tabernacle or the temple later to be built that God wanted to teach his people that there are certain ways we approach and the tabernacle still remains for us as Christian believers uh, a model for how we should think about approaching God or how he might deign to approach us. Now, the tabernacle is not, let me say clearly, a model for how we should think about church architecture. No. 
It's not a model for whether we should wear robes or not or use incense or not in church. Those are such superficial readings of what the tabernacle's about. No, the deep lesson of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle or the temple is that we have to think carefully about drawing near. If we're going to have an audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it's not surprising that he gives us certain guidelines about how that approach works. Worship is drawing near. So today, in this service, beware. God set up the tabernacle and assumed that you could only approach him on his terms. And we see in the book of Exodus, chapters 19 to 24 in particular, that there are certain gradations. When Moses goes up the mountain, the people are in the valley below the mountain. The elders go up with him, but Moses is the only one who can actually meet the Lord. There are certain assumptions about Moses' status and the elders' status and the people's status that the mountain itself has distinct zones. And it's the same in the tabernacle, right? You have to pass the altar before you can get to the ark. To, for the high priest to go into the most holy place where the Lord set his name to dwell, you have to first pass the altar in the outer court. You can't get to be in the Lord's presence unless you've first been cleansed. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when he has a vision in the days of King Uzziah of the Lord, he's kind of feeling very insecure because when he sees just the hem of the Lord's garment in the temple, he falls down and says, woe to me, I'm an unclean man, unclean lips. He, he's learnt the lesson that only if you pass by the altar can you come to the ark? There has to be cleansing. God has set the rules for how we get to be in his presence. Yes, but I hear you saying, Reese, we're Christians. We can come to Jesus anytime, right? Yes, sure. And I want you to pray each day. But when we come to Christ, we're still coming on his terms, even though it's not in a consecrated building. It's glorious. In chapter 12 that Pedram read for us, the first paragraph, verses 18 to 21, speaks of the fear that approaching God on the mount caused people. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. The contrast is made, verse Verses 22 to 24. But you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, thousands upon thousands of angels, to the church of the firstborn, uh, 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks better. You kind of feel like the pressure's off. The sting in the tail from verse 25 to the end is, yes, of course, we shouldn't come fearing as Moses might have on that day. But look at 28. 
since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, of course, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, it shouldn't be fearsome. Of course we have a better way through the blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, but that doesn't mean that Christians are let off the hook. Verse 28, we should be thankful and worship with acceptably with reverence and awe. Our God is still a consuming fire. We can only get to God on his terms, right? Even Christians can only come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and his sprinkled blood. There's no other way to get to God. Mary's not going to help you. Music isn't going to help you get to God and certainly not Oprah. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through me. It's on his terms. And then this post-COVID world, as we've tried to get people to come back to church, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully, we need to help people think about what it means each week to have an appointment with the Lord. That's what church is, right? It's an appointment with the Lord, not just for me, but for all of us Together, And I know that it's so convenient to stay home and watch on TV. And I know that it's really easy to be in the queue for your coffee before church and so turn up to the service 10, 15 minutes late. I understand the conveniences, but we've got an appointment with the King of Kings. He's deciding how we should come to him. We need to come to him with reverence and awe. Our God is a consuming fire. What happens then when Moses or people in the tabernacle have worked out what it means to approach God, walking past the altar where sacrifices were made to get to the ark where God's law and God's throne dwelt? Well, when you get to meet the king of kings, the chief thing you need to do, first of all, is not say anything but listen. Because that's the whole point of coming to his presence. His throne is over the ark where his word was. You come to him to receive his presence. His presence is through his word. Or as Calvin would say, that the word of God is the scepter by which the heavenly king rules. God is present even now here because his word, his voice, is being heard. As Isaiah 66 suggests, we should be trembling. I should be trembling at his word. We come, this audience with the king, to listen, not primarily to speak. Listen to this glorious quotation from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who kind of discovered the Bible in the course of his own ministry and discipleship. Bonhoeffer writes, The entire Bible 
is the word in which God allows himself to be found by us. God allows himself to be found? It's not just that we find him. He's giving us permission to find him. It's not a place, Bonhoeffer says, that's agreeable to us or makes sense to us, but instead it's a place that is strange to us and contrary to our nature. Yet the very place in which God has decided to meet us. This is how I read the Bible now. I ask of each passage, what is God saying to us here? And I ask God that he would help us hear what he wants to say. So we're not looking for general eternal truths which correspond with our own eternal nature and are therefore somehow self-evident to us. Instead, we seek the will of God who is altogether strange, whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts, who hides himself from us under the sign of the cross in which all our ways and thoughts have an end. And let me tell you quite personally that since I've learned to read the Bible in this way, that's not so long ago, he says, it has become daily more wonderful to me. What a glorious testimony to someone who's rediscovered the power of God's word and God's voice. The most important thing, the most important sense you bring to church is your hearing. Faith comes from hearing, Paul writes. And church services without a ministry of the word aren't really church services at all. But after we've listened, we've entered the Lord's presence and we've listened, we should see ourselves as worthy to speak. We're God's children. We're not slaves who are cowering. We come boldly as sons and daughters to present to him our requests. We no longer offer sacrifices of animals, but now we do offer a sacrifice of prayer and praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, the writer to the Hebrews writes in 1315. We do speak in church and primarily our speaking is praying. We offer our intercessions. We give to the king our concerns, our worries, our requests, our demands. And it's true that the thing that is more and more falling out of church services in Melbourne and beyond, actually, is the time of praying for our governments, for the world, even for our church. There's a historian named David Bebbington. Uh, if you've taken classes with me, his, na- his name may be familiar. He's an Englishman. He's taught until recently in Scotland. And he's been travelling the world for the last 40, 50 years giving lectures. And he's got one of those kind of steel trap minds, he writes down every church service he's ever gone to anywhere in the world exactly how many minutes were spent on every part of the service and what songs were sung and how long the sermon went for. He's got this file. And this is what he says, if you, if you kind of were interested to ask. He says that clearly, clearly the thing that has changed most in his lifetime, he's a Baptist, uh, the thing that he's changed most in his lifetime in any church that he goes to anywhere in the world is that the intercessions have gone missing. Christians have just stopped praying for the world. Christians have just stopped praying for each other or praying for governments or praying for the church. He said 
everywhere it's the case, and in any denomination. This is his universal experience of church services. It's an indictment. We spend a, long, a lot of time arguing about 1 Timothy chapter 2 and men and women in ministry, but we don't spend much time obeying 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 6, which Paul commands us to pray for those in authority. Praying for governments. It's a command. And if you struggle in your praying in church or even not in church, there's 150 sample prayers for you in the Psalter. So we've come into the Lord's presence. The King of Kings has spoken his word. We've responded and presented to him our requests. And when the time of the audience is past, we're sent out from the King's presence with a message. We want to talk about, we want to relay the things we've learned there. Uh, I can't say I've often been in the presence of greatness, but in uh, 2008, I did meet Hillary Clinton. Now, I'm not saying that I agree with her politics, but the talk I went to where she spoke was kind of sensational. Uh, she was across the detail. She's a bit of a policy wonk. She's kind of so smart that she can produce thinking about law and society and government. Uh, I wasn't going to go up to her. I thought, that's stupid. I'm not going to go up to her. Like, this is just so sucky. <laughs> I did have my camera with me, though. That, that... <laughs> yeah, well, I, lots of people are doing selfies. That is true. That is true. I thought, no, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. And who knows? I'm not perhaps not meant to be here anyway, given that I speak with an Australian accent. Anyway, so I was hanging back and the crowd parted and she was, say, there where Helena is. And she looks me square in the face. She says, do you want a photo too? And I go... <laughs> and I could not stop talking about that. And now is 2022. <laughs> <laughs> the presence of greatness, you want to relay something of the encounter. We're ambassadors for Christ. The Lord of Lords sends us out from his presence to be his ambassadors in the world, declaring his praise here, certainly, and declaring his praise beyond the church service. In fact, Part of the reason we gather in chapel or in church on Sundays is to get ready to be better prepared to serve the world after we've left the building. John Piper says, mission exists where worship does not. The end of a church service, the end of our chapel services, is not just a reminder about morning tea or coming back next week. You have a diary to do that. Now, the end of a church service, the smishal is, is the leader of the service telling us to go and serve the Lord, to leave here with the kind of experience we've had that we might tell the world of him. The dismissal is a pivotal moment as we leave this encounter with the Lord and take that experience into the world outside. Oh, the tabernacle the temple, 
the tent of meeting provides some really significant lessons for how we might think about church. And of course, the tabernacle primarily points to Christ who tabernacled with us, who dwelt with us. But the tabernacle also points to how we think of ourselves, for we're a spiritual house being built up. We're living sacrifices who offer ourselves to the Lord. We're a holy temple for the Spirit dwells amongst us. The tabernacle points to Christ, but it also points to Christ's body and how the head and the body might understand their relationship. We've learnt some lessons from these texts about worship today. How to approach, how to listen, how to speak and how to go. Of course, we want to encourage our people in church to come back to the building, to be together, enjoying as God's people that weekly appointment with the Lord. Worship is not just celebrating the fact that God exists. It's enjoying his presence as his people too. Amen. Thank you.